If you would please open your Bibles to the letter of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, the second chapter, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. I would once again encourage you to keep your Bibles open to this passage. It is my text. And I will once again remind you as we read it that this is the Word of God. The book of Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loved for us, even when we were dead and our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, the wonder of these words that we were made alive together with Christ, made us alive together with Christ. Lord, we can never fully comprehend that until we see Christ, until we are in the glory of heaven, until we are in the, the presence of our Savior, until uh, we have been given the ability to comprehend fully what it means to be made alive in Christ. And Lord, we're alive now. Yes, if the Lord tarries, we will all die one day. And I know that often at funerals, I will say that the deceased is more alive today than they've ever been, which is true. But Lord, we are alive today. We've been made alive in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So I pray this morning, God, to my best of my ability, which I confess is limited and finite, but that you will help me to stick to the passage and try to bring to the surface the glories of being made alive in Jesus, I pray. Amen. Anti-disestablishment and 
When I was in grade school, they taught us a long time ago, they taught us that the, the longest word in English was anti-disestablishmentarianism. They didn't teach us the definition, but they taught us the word. <laughs> and over the years, I confess, I'd like to whip it out, you know, just impress people. Do you know what the longest word in English is? Anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> Surprisingly, it has a religious connotation. I went and looked it up one day. I thought, you know, I don't know what that word is. Well, it's not like it would be something bad, and I had been telling it to people. Uh, but it, it is a political philosophy opposed to the separation of a religious group, like church, and government, like state. Especially, the belief was held by 19th century England, uh, opposed to separating the Anglican church from civil government, or as we would refer to it, the separation of church and state. It's against the separation of church and state, anti-disestablishmentarianism. And then Google came. Now Google says there is a longer word. In it. Now, anti-disestablishmentarianism is 28 letters. The now, Google says, the longest word in English is 45 letters. It is pneumono, ultramicroscopic, silico, volcano, kenosis. It's an obscure term, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's an obscure term, ostensibly referring to a lung disease caused by silica dust. So you know those little package you get in your packages? You know, don't, don't inhale those. That, you end up with um, pneumonia, ultramicroscopic, silico, volcano, kenosis. Okay. The longest word in the Bible is actually a name we find it in Isaiah chapter 8. It's 18 letters. It's Meir Shalalash Hashbaz. And it means, and I don't know how you get a name like this, but it means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Well, thankfully, my sermon isn't about the two longest words in the Bible, but the two biggest. In fact, the words are quite small. We find them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Only three letters each, but if true, if true, they are the biggest words in history. Let's, let's think for a moment about the significance of the words, but God. If they're true, then first of all, there is a God. If there is a God, then life isn't meaningless. Our existence isn't an accident. There is hope beyond the grave. If there is a God, evildoers will face judgment, and injustice will be righted. But God, there's a God who intervenes. He's not inactive. He's not unloved, unloving. He's not uncaring. In fact, he has proven his existence and has directly impacted history on more than one occasion. As an example, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God, 
God sent his son to reveal himself and to die for us. Acts 13.30 But God raised him from the dead. God sent his son to die for our sins and then God raised him from the dead. If there's a God, then that is how God has acted in history. And seeing the impact that the resurrection of the Lord had on history, we can't help but conclude there is a God, and he is active, and he does intervene. But God. So then we come to chapter 2, verse 4, and we read, But God. But God raised us from the dead. See, not only did God raise Christ from the dead, but God has raised us from the dead. Verse 5, the middle part, made us alive together with Christ. So I want to think this morning about the two biggest words in the Bible. But God. First of all, our problem. Our problem is we are dead in sin. We are dead in sin. Now I'm speaking of in our natural state. If we're believers, then we were dead in sin. But humanity, the problem that humanity has is they're dead in sin. Now you'll notice verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now notice he starts with and you. He didn't just start with you. It would make perfect sense if he just said you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But he says and you. So he's tying it to what he already said. Okay? Like what he said in verse 20 of chapter 1. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God raised Christ from the dead and then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things as rejected under his feet and has given him his head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, this is grandeur. This is, this is, this is tremendous. God raised Christ and exalted him and he ascended to his Father's right hand and he rules with God throughout the universe and will forever. And you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the, those are sins of um, commission and omission. Things we do that are wrong and things that are right that we don't do. We're dead. We're dead. I mean, verses 19 through 23 uh, in, the, in chapter 1, they take us to the very heights. They take us into, into heaven. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, takes us to the very depths. Death, hell, and the grave. Christ is alive, of course, because of his righteousness. He was holy. He was God in the flesh. We are dead because of our unrighteousness, because of our sins. Christ is exalted, seated in heaven, but we dwell on earth. Christ has been given power and authority over all, and as we'll see in the book of Ephesians, we're subject to authorities and powers. And we'll see it in, this ver in, in verse 3. Verse 2 and 3. 
But God intervened. We were dead in our sins, but God intervened. So first we see our status. Our status is we're dead. We're dead men walking. We are dead men walking. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead. Not almost dead. Not close to death. When I was in college, I know it's hard to believe, but I took a few classes in music. And I remember one of the professors talking about um, that the, the, the mood of the song, or the, or the, the I forget his terminology, I wasn't paying much attention. Uh, <laughs> but the tenure of the song should fit the tune, you know, the style. And a lot of songs don't. And he, lo he, he gave this as an example, because this is one of his pet peeves, right? We, we know the song. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Right, you know that song? Well, he said it sounds like, I was sinking deep in sin, having a wonderful time. <laughs> right? But my problem isn't really with the tune. My problem is with the theology. Because it seems to imply that you're drowning, and you're coming up for the third time, and you stick your hand out, and God, God rescues you. But that's not what the verse says. You're dead. You're not drowning. You're dead. You've washed up on the shore five miles down. You're dead. You're dead. Spiritual zombies, the walking dead, who don't know they're dead. They go through emotions of life, but they don't possess it. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So this is, just, this is just saying the same thing. It's just reverse the order. The wages of sin is death. Here you're dead because, of your wages, because it's the wages of sin. We're born dead. Now, as we saw in chapter 1, Paul has in mind here both Gentiles and Jews and then the whole world because he says, uh, verse uh, 1, you and you were dead. Now, again, the you is referring to the Ephesians church, which was a Gentile church. It wasn't a Jewish church. It was like us being non-Jewish. Okay, it was like us. You Gentiles were dead in your sins. But he's not excluding uh, the Jews. Verse 3 says, among them we too. So that's talking about the Jewish nation. Paul was Jewish. So he says, listen, I'm not just picking on the Gentiles that you were dead in your sins. So were us, the Jews. Okay. But then he goes on to say in verse 3, even as the rest. Look at the last part of verse 3. Even as the rest. The rest of mankind. So this is all compassing here. Um, Jew, Gentile, everybody's included. We're all dead. That's our status. Our practice is we're disobedient. Because we're dead, we, we, we can't obey. Uh, we can't obey righteousness. We can't obey holiness. Look at verse 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the, the, the demonic influence. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the loss of the flesh. So there's outer, so there's this, there's this outer um, uh, enslavement to sin, but there's also the inner enslavement because we too 
uh, also we live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So it's not just that the, the, the world causes us to be disobedient. We want to be. We want to be. Someone said, I don't remember who, um, the, only, the only thing of my very own which I contributed to redemption is the sin from which I needed to be redeemed. Now, there are three forces working against us when we are dead in sin, as we saw, the world, verse 2, the devil, uh, again, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, the world, the devil, and our flesh. Verse 3, the world, the flesh, the devil, as it's usually put. The world, the flesh, the devil. First John 2.16, again, same thing. The world, the flesh, the devil. We, we are at, as unbel okay, unbelievers are at the mercy of the world, the flesh, the devil. They're disobedient. We're seeing, I believe, this evil permeate, permeate our culture, our country. Sometimes we say, again, look at verse 2. In which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world. The, the course of this world. This is the way the world is. We shouldn't be surprised. Right? The world walks according to the prince, according to the, prince of the power of the air, of, of, of Satan, of evil. Um, sometimes, we'll, you know, we'll, some people will say, well, you need to get America back on course. I, I want to say to you, America's on course right now. Because they're under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's, that's humanity's course. That's the natural state. Well, thank God we live in a country that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and there was some sense of morality. But this decline is not unnatural. It's just reverting back to the norm. <laughs> this is what, this is how the world acts. They're dead. They're dead. You can't expect them to be alive. So our status is we are dead. Now again, he says formally. I'm referring to humanity as a whole. And for those of us who are believers, that was our status. Our practice is disobedience. <coughs> Our nature is depraved. Again, look at verse uh, 3, the last part. And we're by nature children of wrath. Our nature is depraved. We sin because we are sinners. You know, we live in a culture, again, that, that makes everybody a victim. And there's a reason why you're doing this. Yeah, I can tell you the reason. You're a sinner. Right? Romans 3.23 <clears throat> For all have what? Sinned. And come what? Short of the glory of God. Our lack of holiness makes us incapable of, of a living relationship with a holy God. And because of that our destiny is we're doomed. Apart from Christ, we are doomed. We are, again, I didn't say it. The verse says, by nature, children of wrath. 
In John 3, Jesus said, I, I'm, I got an idea of, it, of a sermon series, um, something like this. I'm working on it. So, did Jesus really say that? <laughs> did Jesus really say that? Uh, in John 3, he said, uh, He who has not believed is judged already. He who has not believed is judged already. They're already doomed. They're already dead. They're already on their way to hell. But again, did Jesus really say that? Yeah. He did. This is the human dilemma. We are born dead. And we are surrounded by dead people. We are living in a culture of death. The fact that our society shrugs its shoulders as regimes kill ethnic groups and religious groups. I'm not going to get, I don't want to go too far here. I understand why it's unfair for Olympians not to get to go to the Olympics. I understand that. What I really don't understand is the Olympic Committee choosing a country like China who kills the Uyghurs. That's what I don't understand. I'm not faulting the athletes. But we live in a society who doesn't care. They don't care. We're, the last time they were in North Korea, for goodness sake. We don't care. We live in a culture of death. We don't care. Uh, you know, again, I... I, I um, Planned Parenthood dismembers babies and sells their parts. We don't care. No wonder our destiny is doomed. Man, this is... Whew. Oh, I forgot to add something. But God. But God. There's the gospel in two words. But God. No sweeter phrase in the English language. Dead men cannot save themselves, but God can. Again, as we saw in chapter 1, chapter 2 through, through 10 is really one coherent sentence in the Greek. And really, if you were to, 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 to uh, I forget my English lit now, or uh, if you were to put the, the, uh, the, the noun and the verb or whatever, I'm, I'm getting that. But basically what it says is God, but God made us alive. Everything else just fills in the blanks. All you school teachers out there are thinking, he needs to go back to school. <laughs> so here's what it is. Verse, uh, verse 4. But God, middle part of verse 5, made us alive. But God made us alive. In spite of all, it says in verses 1, 2, and 3, God intervened. God intervened. God must intervene because we're dead. We are dead. I believe God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. Again, I, I'm finite. I can't, always, I can't always figure all that out, but I've noticed that even regardless of what a person thinks about how sovereign God is salvation, their prayers usually go something like this. Uh, Lord, please save my Uncle Bill. Right? Holy Spirit, please work in his heart. Well, why are you praying that if it doesn't take God to do it, then the Holy Spirit to do it? If it's up to Uncle Bill, then why do I pray for this? I pray for this because salvation is the result of God's work in our hearts. It's not man. There's no reason why God should love me, but he does. So, we were formerly these things, verse 3, but now we have a new status. Okay, 
So, so God's intervention, we are made alive in Christ. God's intervention, we are made alive in Christ. So now we have a new status. Our new status is we are saved, verse 5. But even when we were dead, our transgressions made us alive with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Our status is we are saved. The power of God provides new life. We, are, we have been recreated. We are a new creation. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are saved. First part of verse 6. And raised us up with him. We are sanctified. Our practices, we're sanctified. We're sanctified. We're saints. Again, he addresses it that way in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. We've been sanctified. We've been, we've been united with Christ. We're united with him. The power of God not only provides new life, it provides eternal life. We are now dead to sin. We used to be dead. Through Christ, we're dead to sin. Our nature is we are seated. Again, verse 6, the last part and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, past tense. Past tense. We, God, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us and united us with him. We died with him. We were buried with him. We are resurrected with him. And it's as if we're already sitting with him. It is such a, it's, it's, it's such a completed job that we're always seated in the heavens with him. We have a new nature. Keep your hand here. Go to 2 Corinthians 517. <clears throat> As you know, we, we were created by God. We fell into sin. Our, our nature became corrupted. We live under the power of sin, the bondage of sin. And, but God, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, New things have come. We are a new creation. We, we, we are not raised from the dead and left in the graveyard because we are united with Christ. We have been exalted with him and we're sharing his throne in the heavenlies. So that means, lastly, that our destiny is secure. Go back to Ephesians 2, 7. Our destiny is secure so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing greatness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he will be showing his greatness of his kindness in us. A recent survey of, of, uh, of evangelicals uh, half of them said, God helps those who help themselves. 
Um, half of them thought it was a Bible verse, God helps them who helps themselves. 84% thought it was biblical, but it's the opposite of grace. For by grace you have been saved. God helps those who can't help themselves. The Bible says we were dead, not hopeless, not helpless, not weak, not powerless, not terminally ill and dying. We were dead and decaying. But we have God's undeserved favor. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember the old, in Sunday school, they taught us grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, lastly, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate outcome, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing of his, of his grace and kindness toward us and believe. Notice in the ages to come, for by grace you've been saved through faith that and of yourselves is the gift of God, um, and not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. The primary reason, the primary purpose for God sitting his son to die in, our in the sinner's place was not to produce the happiness of the sinner, saved by grace, but rather the demonstration of the grace of God for all eternity. Again, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, toward us who believe, toward us who believe. We have been created by the, the work of God for good works so that, we can, so that we can show dead people that Christ can make them alive. But even when this earth passes forever, we will still be showing each other that God can make us alive because we're there with Christ in the heavenlies. D.L. Moody said, I've quoted D.L. Moody before, it's a good thing we can't save ourselves because in heaven we'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> right? The gospel allows no opportunity for man's boasting. God brings the dead to life. You cannot do anything to save yourself. But God can. Let's pray. But God, the two—I I, honestly—I I believe the two biggest words in the history of humanity, uh, the two biggest words in the universe. But God, it, it means so much. If it—it—it it, it, it implies that there is a God. And that he's active. That he intervenes. And that nothing is hopeless. Death is not final. But God. 
Lord, I would ask this week, just once in a while, the Holy Spirit would put in our mind two words, but God. But God. Thank you, God. Amen.